Hi, hello, and welcome to episode one of Through the Eyes of Joey. This episode, we're going to begin our story of a journey back in time to a location where a lot of wild and wonderful events took place, Chicago. In this episode, I will read written testimony from Josephine Ann Bowden. Her married name was Sobel, and she talks about her life and times growing up. Josephine had two nicknames growing up in her childhood. One was Mooney Mush, and the other nickname was Joey. Both her parents called her Joey, and so did her sister, Mary Bowden. Josephine was not very happy with her formal name, and she much preferred the name Joey. In fact, on a couple of occasions, she had said to me that the reason why she didn't like her name Josephine was that she thought that maybe her parents had really wanted a boy, and so they had the name Joseph ready to go. And then she came out, and they looked at her, and they said, Josephine? So when uh, Josephine's sister Mary would visit us from time to time, and Mary called her Joey. I would watch my mom's eyes twinkle. She loved and looked up to her sister Mary Bowden. Joey loved hearing Mary use her childhood nickname. And those two sisters, when they got together in later years, they were a hoot. One time, I went with them to the Macy's perfume counter shopping, and my Aunt Mary was staying with us at that time. It was a number of days she would stay, and she'd visit maybe a couple times a year. I was about 10 or 11 years old at the most, and my Aunt Mary wanted to go to the, quote, fancy store, and quote, and maybe, she said, buy some new perfume. She lived in Lakeport, which was in Lake County, California, and they didn't have high-end department stores there. So once we were at Macy's, my Aunt Mary proceeded to try on so much perfume on herself, she ran out of places on her hands and arms to test. So she smiled and she looked over at her little sister as if Joey was her lab rat. And she tugged at her and she said, Joey, give me your arms. And her tone of voice sounded like a robber saying, give me all your money. And my mother rolled her eyes and she offered up her arms like a good little sister. But my mother was very dramatic because she was holding her arms out like a zombie. And Mary sprayed and smelled and then she sprayed Joey and then she smelled again then she sprayed Joey again and she winced then she sprayed Joey again and she coughed and she sprayed again and she shook her head no over and over and my mother had about 12 sprays of different perfumes and my mother was just reeking of various kinds of perfume and so was my Aunt Mary of course because she had already been through that herself so Sister Mary she looked at Sister Joey and they were smell they smelled each other it was horrible, and they just burst out laughing uncontrollably. And the bladder control between the two laughing sisters, I guess, was shaky to begin with, so it only got worse at the perfume counter. But before each spray, see, Mary would use a French accent and ask Joey, would you care for some hot couture parfum? And, of course, Joey would respond in a French accent back, oui, merci beaucoup. Not merci beaucoup, though, No, Joey would pronounce it coupe, like a car. And they did this act over and over, amusing themselves. The bladder control, though, went south, literally, at some point. So off they rushed in a hurry to the ladies' room for repair, inverted commas, with me, you know, running behind them hastily, trying to figure out, you know, really what all this uh, older sibling stuff was about. And they go into the bathroom giggling and, and laughing and, you know, 
they come out of the bathroom giggling and laughing. And as we passed the perfume area to exit the store, my mother, Joey, looked at Mary and said, Oh, Mary, you didn't get any perfume. And then Mary looked at Joey wide-eyed. And then Mary Laser focused her stare onto me and she said, That's true. Say, Joey, I think we found a new victim to test more perfume smells on. Little Mary, we can use her arms. Get over here, kid. Let's get spraying some more. Well, I was happy to be included as one of the girls. More spraying ensued, and still not one spray was a winner. Now, Mary never bought any perfume. As the three of us walked out of the Macy's door, a lady was walking in, and she stared at the three of us. She recoiled back a bit, and she pinched her nose up tightly. Mary immediately noticed her wincing, and she smirked at Joey, and then she looked at this lady, and she said, Yeah, I know. We stink to high heaven, and we don't care. And out they went laughing. I mean, we did have a lot of fun that day. But honestly, I think I had more fun just watching those two Bowden sisters play together in an adult way and enjoy each other's company in the small spaces of time and tiny pieces of moments that they were able to share together. Life had played some cruel jokes on Mary and Joey Bowden in their childhood, but they still found solace and humor in the face of it all, together, eventually, later in life. So, in the spirit of keeping Josephine's personal name preference in mind as we reminisce about Chicago and her childhood with her, I think it's only fitting that we call this series Through the Eyes of Joey. Now, between the years of 1998 and 2005, respectively, Joey wrote about her parents' family stories and of her childhood memories growing up in Chicago, Illinois. All of her stories and written testimony was shared with Patty Sobel Herswitzky and Mary Sobel Ott, Joey's two surviving biological daughters. The information in this episode and the structure of these episodes will be presented in the following manner for easy listening. One, I will be narrating Joey's written words to you, and when I do that, I will say, Joey says, and then I'll read her her text. Two, I've taken the liberty to weave into each of her statement segments or stories researched historical side notes into the text to help to build some more context for you, the listener, so you can understand more of what or why Joey was influenced by a memory, a particular location, or how she you know, waxes on reminiscing about a particular subject matter of that day or time in history. And I will continue back to her written text uh, using the prompt phrase, Joey continues. Thirdly, many details Joey shares with us in her testimony is based upon her experiences in her childhood growing up in Chicago and then her experiences which her parents shared with her of their childhoods in Iowa and Minnesota. Her mother, Ellen Egan, was born in Iowa and her father, Michael James Bowden Jr., was born in Minnesota. So many of Joey's written memories are subject matter she knew something about from a time period of roughly 1921 to 1947. Now, when she talks about her parents, of course, that goes back into the 1800s or the early 1900s, and she might not have a, a clear idea of what was going on. To her, those periods of time were only what she knew of 
as what was shared to her by her parents. But that said, you know, we didn't live in Chicago. So many of the places and areas or current events require clarification for us. As Joey writes about something of historical significance, I will then digress to provide more historical information. I hope it helps to explain further what she's talking about. And then when I finish my historical context, I will return to narrating her words. I just felt it was important to weave Joey's stories with historical context into this document. And in doing so, I feel there's more of a dimensional understanding of her writings and her mental formations. So grab a cup of joe or a glass of vino, sit a spell with me while we enjoy the feeling of visiting with family in the way back when. Let's jump in and experience and hear about Chicago and our family ancestry through the eyes of Joey. Joey says, Chicago at the turn of the century and beyond. Oh, it was a great city. Mm. You know, New York was propagandized. It was the entrance point of immigrants. But you'll notice they moved on from New York. Chicago was a mecca for entertainment. Theater, cabarets, nightclubs, hotels, shows, and big bands. The Aragon Ballroom. They had every top-notch band leader on the north side. The circus was a big event. The parks, the zoo, the wealth, and the show people. Most of your stars came out of Chicago or had long runs in the theater there. They were honing their talents. And a lot of Jewish entertainers came out of New York. But Chicago had a blend of all the nationalities, and that made quite a wonderful blend of art. We had the Art Museum, the Field Museum, the planetarium, the lake, Lake Michigan, I swam in it. But this was Chicago, and what a joy it was to be there in its heyday. Chicago had a spirit, I guess esprit de corps. Chez Paris, you know, was at the corner for budding talent. It was a stepping stone to fame, a, a nightclub. My mother and dad really relished it. We were all so happy in a way to be a part of this kind of lifestyle? Well, I got an audition at Chez Paris around 1936. It was arranged by the neighbors we knew in our apartment building. It was, I think I was almost 16 years old. The neighbor was in the chorus there at the club. She was a beauty contest winner. I got the audition and it was great, but the manager said, you don't have a name he says to me, meaning no audience drawing cabaret. He says, they even sit on their hands here for Gertrude Neeson. She was, I guess, some popular cabaret singer at the time, well-known. So he told me, hey, you need to go out, do more work, get around, and get yourself a name. And I heard that. I often wondered, well, how do you do that when no one hires you? Of course, Chez Paris was starting at the top. Francis X. Bushman, a movie man, he attended our show. When I did a show at the Medina Club, that's when he told me I was, quote, going places, end quote. Yeah, he was from Hollywood. Hollywood was glamorous. 
but, you know, singers and dancers, they were a dime a dozen. Career-wise, Chicago would have been it for me. But the good Lord had other plans for me. I met Dad, Harold Sobel. I met him at Sullivan High School. And years later, you know, I sang at the officers' clubs. And I always sang my favorite song, A Summertime. Historical note. Chez Paris was a Chicago nightclub. It was known for its glamorous atmosphere and top entertainers. It was the epitome of entertainment. And it hosted singers and comedians and other acts from 1932 to 1960. If you take some time to look it up, you will see the kind of entertainers that went there and you will know what Joey is talking about. And I can only imagine that when she got an audition there, it must have been the most exciting and exhilarating moment of her life. Chapery was located at 610 North Fairbanks Court in Chicago. And Chapery, the front and the facade of the building, can be seen in the film Mickey One with Warren Beatty. Joey continues. Mother and dad, Uncle Michael, I used to call him, they didn't own a car, ever. No, in Chicago, no, we never had a car. No cars. Parents, my parents never had any cars or owned a home. Chicago had the greatest transportation system in the world. It was great and fast. One could get anywhere in the city of Chicago by streetcar, bus, the elevated, or taxi. Best transportation facilities anywhere in this country to this day. It was, it's too bad those politicians and City Hall and above them didn't have the same reputation. But in those days, you know, even with all of that, we had peddlers, you know, in the 1930s. And I remember them in their horse-drawn carts. Friday was fish day, and they would all yell, fish, fish, fish. And in the morning times, they would call for ice. And you would leave a sign in your window regarding poundage, 25, 50, 75 pound block. If you wanted the ice block or ice, you'd leave the sign for the size ice block you wanted and the ice man would deliver it and he'd put it in the ice box. Milk was delivered this way too. And the milk horse always knew when to stop at which residence, etc., for the milk run. And the tar man would come, and he would fix the roof. But speaking of corruption, you know, those cops during that time, they were on the take. It was Al Capone time. Let us not forget the Depression. I mean, the police went without pay for quite a while, perhaps two years of a pinch penny administration. Al Capone, as told to me by Harold Sobel, my husband, he was idolized in Chicago. He set up soup kitchens. He doled out money, etc. When Capone came to the baseball park in Chicago, Wrigley Field, the throngs of people would stand, applaud, and greet him like a Caesar, like Caesar Augustus, a Roman emperor. Anyway, Capone had his day, I mean, so no wonder crime was rampant. And these territorial crimes, that's what it all boiled down to. Shootings, you know, were contracts. And bootlegging was because of prohibition. 
activities like prostitution and later drugs all the way to the big business kind of thing. I guess legitimate, considered legitimate, was it? Today, like, you know, what we see in the corporate world, white collar. But then, at that time, Chicago was so corrupt. Bigger businesses were into that white collar crime there. Well, Al Capone, he couldn't keep up with that level. Song's education. You know, he didn't have an education. But just as a side note, I do have to say about the prohibition. You know, your grandma, Hazel Gershon Sobel, made gin in the bathtub of her home. The Sobels, they lived near me. Did you know that they hired the Leopold Loeb maid after that murder scandal? Historical side note. The Leopold and Loeb murder trial. On May 21st, 1924, two brilliant, very wealthy Chicago teenagers attempted to commit the perfect crime, just for the thrill of it. Nice kids. They were best friends and young lovers, and Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, they kidnapped 14-year-old, a boy, 14-year-old Bobby Brooks, and cold-heartedly, they bludgeoned him to death in the back seat of a rented car. And then they dumped Frank's body in a distant culvert near water. And although they thought their plan was foolproof, I mean, they planned this thing for six months, Leopold and Loeb made a number of rookie mistakes that led the police to them. But, namely, one of the guys wore prescription glasses that were very exclusive and made a particular way, obviously. Their richness got them caught, I think. But this super police sleuthing led them to Richard Loeb and the subsequent murder trial, which featured famous attorney Clarence Darrow, who represented the young man, sadly took front stage over the sad murder, horrible murder of Bobby Franks, because the trial became more of the show uh, because of Darrow. He made a riveting defense speech, closing argument of his career. It lasted for like two hours, and it made headlines around the world. It was, this trial was referred to as the trial of the century. So I guess these young men were found guilty of murder, right? And they're sent to prison for life. But what Joey is saying is that the maid who worked at one of the residences of these young men was the same maid who went to work for Alexander Sobel's family at the time when the Sobels were still you know, wealthy, etc. And I have to say that, you know, in the census forms, when you look at the census and you read who is living in a house at a particular time, when you were a live-in servant, you were counted as a body in that house living there. And in the 1930 census, when the Sobels were living on Eastwood Avenue, they show that Alexander Sobel lives there, Hazel, Harold, and Irwin, and there is a servant. So they did have a live-in maid servant. Her ethnicity was Swedish, and they give you her name. Now, I don't know if this was the same maid that Joey is referring to who had left the employ of one of the families, the Lobes of the Leopolds, after the murder trial, but I find it interesting that she says that, you know, Alexander Sobel had hired this servant um, who had been working in, in that environment. So I find that an interesting piece of, of history. I can't find her name um, in terms of, I'd have to go very deep to see if this was the same person, but 
Anyway, nonetheless, perhaps that's material for another time. Joey continues, the Chicago government corruption was akin to like Edward the Edward the Eighth, you know, being cajoled or pushed out of his position in the 1940s. The British government was worried about his being a sympathizer with Hitler and Germany, corruption. Same with Joe Kennedy. Weren't they shocked when Hitler crossed the continent? Oh, they said, you know, the monarchy. Oh, it was only, quote, the woman he loved, the reason for his abdication. But his weakness, the weakness on his part that pushed the English to oust him, well, I mean, it was that. His excessive drinking was a weakness, too. And the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, that was just par for the course then. You know, corruption, it was terrible. The the boys were at it again. But life went on in Chicago every day, despite it. Historical note. Very few organizations in the early 19th and 20th century are responsible for more crime drama than the mafia. Marked by larger-than-life guys like Al Scarface Capone, who resided in Chicago and basically owned Chicago, inverted commas, during the Depression. We have so many history books filled with stories of these guys. And Capone ran circles around the government in Chicago. Now, the mafia, the term mafia, that was used by law enforcement. But in the inner circles of the crime syndicates, they didn't use that term. They called it our thing. And they just called it Cosa Nostra. So sometimes you would hear the Cosa Nostra or the, it was not the Cosa Nostra because it, that would have been the our thing. It was Cosa Nostra. It was just called our thing. And so that's one of those things to be aware of whenever we hear the word mafia. That was not coined by Cosa Nostra or those living within the Cosa Nostra precepts. And and in the 1930s, you know, with the Great Depression, it left a lot of citizens hungry. I mean, they were unemployed. They were starving. And although Capone was a criminal, a brutal guy to, to many people who knew him uh, in the inner circles of Cosa Nostra, he was a respected community leader for a lot of people due to his charity. And some say, some say he did more for the citizens of Chicago, Illinois, than the state itself did during that time. Al Capone's Soup Kitchen, that's what it was called. It was situated on uh, what's now a parking lot at the corner of 9th and State Street. It served 120,000 meals to hungry people. Um, like a year. The free soup kitchen kept regular working hours, serving breakfast, lunch, dinner. It fed thousands every day despite having a few employees. The kitchen, Capone's kitchen, was demolished 20 years after the Depression, but it was a place that provided warm meals for unemployed people or, you know, people who couldn't find food. But that was just one side of him. Besides his charity, Capone was also known for sending expensive flower arrangements to rival gang members' funerals. Ouch. And for, of course, his generosity to the strangers and the Italian immigrants. 
But despite Al Capone's hero kind of persona, like I had said in the introduction, kind of like the Robin Hood-ish persona, um, there was another side to Capone. It was very dark. At a 1929 banquet, he allegedly beat three associates, Albert and Selmy, Joseph Junta, and John Scalise, nearly to death with a baseball bat. Probably a bat given to him at Wrigley Field <laughs> during one of his uh, game attendance uh, events. But while his banquet guests were made to watch this horror, he bashed his friends away, three of them. So Alphonse Gabriel Capone was a brutal man. And eventually he went to Alcatraz. He was paroled in 39. He had a mansion in Miami, Palm Island, and he died there in 1947. He had failing health, as I had said earlier in another episode, because of untreated late-stage syphilis. And two, I think one of the bloodiest mob wars to, to this day acted out on the streets of Chicago was on February 14th, 1929. Um, it was the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. It left a bloody legacy of crime and corruption in the Chicago history books. Um, that 13-year ban on drinking alcohol in the United States, known as the Prohibition, it's 1920 to 1933, it created opportunities for unimaginable wealth for mafia figures. In fact, I don't know if many people know this. I certainly didn't until I researched this prohibition thing in Capone, but Chicago was the main hub of alcohol production and distribution. So in hindsight, I mean, I think it's clear that prohibition, the national temperance campaign aimed at, you know, reforming um, human nature's worst tendencies, perhaps, it gave birth to one of the nation's worst criminal traditions. It led to unimaginable crime baths of, you know, gang warfare, territorial warfare. And these were acted out on the streets of Chicago and New York frequently. Now, thirdly, Helen Bowden, Joey's mother, was a police officer at one of the most dangerous times in history to be a police officer in Chicago. She began her career in 1922, and she retired in 1947. So think about this for a moment. She consciously decided to leave her nursing career and become a police officer at the most dangerous time in Chicago history. Doesn't it make you wonder why she chose to do that? Does me. Joey continues. My dad, Michael Bowden, he played the violin and he did the buck and wing tap dance. It was a tap dance, you know, with sliding and stomping movements. He was a showbiz man. My mother, Helen Bowden, she played the piano. My sister, Mary, she sang and danced. Danced. She won a beauty contest in 1926 through the Elks Lodge and she won a free trip to Hollywood to meet an agent. She got a contract there with Warner Brothers Studios. Whew. And me, well, Joey, I sang too. But my mother loved playing the piano. And she told me she had to wait through a few of her siblings to take their piano lessons before she could. And after each of her siblings gave up their piano lessons and quit, 
I guess whoever was next in line, got a chance. These lessons, it was 25 cents to 50 cents a lesson. My mother, Helen, waited quite a while. She was determined. And when it was her turn, she snapped it up and she stuck with it. Later in life, she played the organ at the hospital chapel in Cook County Hospital. She played at church and she played the piano at home. Oh, how well, how well I remember it. I think it probably sparked my interest in music and the love of it, watching her play piano and along with my father, who played his violin. Historical note. Josephine notes that Michael James Bowden Jr. could play the violin and tap dance. Now, it's not known if his father, Michael Bowden Sr., had the same ability, play the violin, tap dance, or if he even taught his son how to dance an Irish jig from what he had learned as a child in Ireland. Michael Bowden Sr. was born in Ireland, and he came to America in his mid-20s. So how much of the true Irish he taught his children, some of the traditions, the dancing, and maybe violin, I, I don't know. But it's interesting to note that in Ireland, children are taught to dance uh, very early, and they're socially accompanied by sometimes just a violin. They dance the jig or the reel, and they use a pair of shoes with very low wooden heels. And when, when you get a little better, um, they would add a front piece to the tip. It was a, like a metal piece on it, on the tip for use when they would tap the jig or dance the keili. The keili is spelled C-E-I-L-I. It's a famous Gaelic social dance. And when I was in Ireland for a month in 2017, I saw this for myself, these dances. And these children are taught very, very early. And they're taught, they start with the wood heel, and when they get better, then they can add the metal. So you had the wood sound clunk of the heel, and then you'd have a higher sound of metal. And between the two, you had just a great thumping beat and a stomping beat. And if you had 10 or more of these people doing a jig on stage, it is really phenomenal. It's something to see live and in Ireland if you ever get a chance. And I think it's on this note that I'm going to end this recording, this episode session for now, and we'll continue with our next episode a little bit later. Thanks so much for listening. Chat with you soon.